in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all your lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Brian Fry, and joining me today are my special guest hosts, Mary Guest and Bethany Morris. How are both of you today? Mary? Doing great. Yeah, it's nice to have a break from the world of mom to be able to <laughs> do a podcast with you guys tonight, so looking forward to it. And Bethany, uh, hailing from Knoxville, Tennessee, how are you doing today? Doing very well. Listener to the podcast for my first time on, so very happy to be here. Welcome, welcome. This is going to be a fun one. So just a couple warm-up questions here. If you were to put the sorting hat on, what Hogwarts house are you being put in? Bethany? My middle child would want me to go to Hufflepuff, but I think I've gone out of my comfort zone enough and like pushed my own like baseline comfort zone that Gryffindor is where I would belong. And Mary? Yeah, I wasn't really sure, so I had to do an online quiz for this, and I got uh, Ravenclaw. After I thought about it, it was like, yeah, that's definitely, uh, definitely where I would land if I thought about it. Some of my favorite Potter characters are in Ravenclaw. You know, I love Luna Lovegood and uh, Professor Tonley. Trelawney. Trelawney. That's it. That's it. Trelawney. She's she's in Ravenclaw. So I think, yeah, I think that's where I would belong. I went full go on this. Did the Pottermore thing. I am, in fact, a Hufflepuff. I actually have a sticker that says every day I'm huffling. So uh, that's that's all fun. In addition to that, I'd like to know uh, what was the last movie that you saw, Mary? Russell and I had tried to watch Dune, <laughs> the new one, when it came out on HBO. And I say tried because <laughs> we got 45 minutes through the movie and couldn't finish it. And then when we went back to watch the rest of it, HBO had taken it off. <laughs> So, I didn't get all the way through it. I was so bummed. And so Russell's insisting on waiting until we can get it for free again. Insisting, yeah, that it will at some point come back to HBO Max. It's okay. I'm going to give him uh, crap about that as soon as... I figured that'd be the case. But yeah, so that's... And beyond that, I don't remember. (laughs) Fair enough. Bethany, what was the last one you watched? The honest answer would be Paw Patrol movie streaming in our house. That one has gotten a lot of mileage. The surprising you know, story of redemption with a you know, good soundtrack. <laughs> but um, the last like kind of you know a grown up movie I've, I've seen in theaters was the new Scream movie. Oh, was it good? Um, it's a solid like popcorn flick. Like if you're kind of a fan, okay. of guys go and get your popcorn and just enjoy. You're not you're you're not sorry you paid money for it. No, no, I, I, I enjoyed it. And um, I had kind of three categories of, of people or things that you can kill without guilt, and that's Nazis, zombies, and high schoolers. And so that right, checked right. the box, and it was fun. Given the amount of uh, we're going to kill you uh, young adult fiction that comes through my store on a monthly basis, I, I, that, that tracks. That tracks. 
since I wasn't the one to break the Dune seal, I will say that one of the things that I took away from this movie was that Ron's dad, Arthur Weasley, is probably the second best movie dad behind Oscar Isaacs and Dune. I, I hate like bringing things back to this, and so does Russ, so that's why I take joy in, in plugging these things in. But um, <laughs> no, I was just sitting there thinking... After one part of this, one specific part of this movie, I was like, "Man, Ron's dad's awesome. He's probably the second best movie dad." Yeah, Ron's dad's pretty cool, and maybe you should make that um, an opening question someday. Like, who's the best movie dad? Yeah, who's the best movie dad? I like that. I like that. We'll, we'll uh, we're gonna filter that in. Um, so for me, the last movie I watched was Prisoners, and I, and I have an addendum to make on this. The reason I watched Prisoners was I was searching for Prisoner of Azkaban on my <laughs> Apple thing, and that came up, and I was like, oh, man. So it is uh, Charlie Veneuve's the first movie I ever saw of his, who did Dune, who did Blade Runner 2049, and I was like, oh, I haven't watched that movie in a minute. So I ended up watching that. Before I watched this one, just because I was like, oh, that was a good movie. So that ended up being, uh, outside of Prisoner of Azkaban, that was the last movie I saw. All right, well, uh, we're going to go ahead and reintroduce Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban to you guys. And uh, Mary, if you want to take over. So this movie stars Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grint, Emma Watson, Robbie Coltrane, Michael Gambon, Richard Griffiths, Gary Oldman, and Alan Rickman. Uh, it was released in 2004, and it grossed $249 million. Uh, the place in the box office for that year was number six. It's right behind uh, The Incredibles at number five and right ahead of The Day After Tomorrow at number seven. The number one movie that year was Shrek 2. The IMDb rating was 7.9. Tomato Meter gave it a 90% and an audience score of 86. It had two nominations for Academy Awards, one for Best Original Music Score and one for Best Visual Effects. British Academy Film Awards, it had one win and four nominations. This was the Teen Choice Award winner for the Best Action Movie and was nominated for nine Saturn Awards. Like, what was... I, I Let's start with, have you seen this movie before, Bethany? Yes. And so, as we were in conversations, you know, we wanted to do a Harry Potter film and try to decide which one of the, you know, eight to choose from. I voted for this one uh, for two reasons. One, it was the first Harry Potter film that I had read the book before seeing the movie, and that made it special to me. And two, this is one of the few movies that I can actually remember the first time I saw it. A lot of times I can recall seeing a movie, but not exactly what are the circumstances around it. But this one stands out because I actually saw it on my honeymoon. We had stayed in a very rural area in West Virginia at a family's camp. And, you know, midway in our you know, honeymoon week, because we're super poor and just, you know, doing a honeymoon for free, <laughs> um, we decided to, um, to work a movie in. We drove an hour away to Elkins to the small theater. And oh, really? The, oh, that's a fun story. Together. Um, and you know, we enjoyed it. We were discussing a lot of it. Um, it led to our first fight as a married couple, couple about time travel. Uh, <laughs> Solid. Solid. It's a great way to start a marriage, start a relationship. Um, we're still together, and um, it's a great memory now that the first movie we saw as a married couple and led to our first fight. So. <laughs> Excellent. 
Excellent. Mary, have you seen this movie before? Yeah, I have. And actually, this was the movie that got me on board with the Harry Potter franchise. Because before then, I had seen the first movie, but in a setting where I couldn't really watch it because there was a lot of commotion going on been there with like friends laughing and stuff and you can't really like take in a movie that you're trying to watch for the first time so russell was like you've got to watch these movies because i hadn't even seen the second one Uh, i think we we rented the first two so i could watch them and then we went to this one in the theater so i was blown away because it was the first potter movie that i saw in theaters i have a very similar experience so my brother is 10 years younger than I am and he kind of grew up more succinctly with Harry Potter. And, uh, I knew he was a huge fan. I knew he and my parents had, had been listening to the audio books and, and he had the books and it, it was, it was a thing for them. So it, it became me like at college that I would come home in, uh, Martinsburg, West Virginia and I would take him to see the movies when they came out. It was like my piece of this. And I got to tell you, I suffered through the first two movies. I was like, oh, I, like, I just, I can't. I, I it's just, I, I actually left Chamber of Secrets and I was just like, this, this is seriously just not <laughs> my scene. It wasn't all. connecting with you at the time. And I took him to see Prisoner of Azkaban and I left that movie a different person. I was like, what the, like, like expletive here. Like, I, I was like, this, that was what? Like, <laughs> I, I immediately It's completely went different in tone. So I it totally is, understand your is. reaction. Yeah. I, I, I was so, in, first off, I'm a huge Gary Oldman fan. Like, I, I will see anything with Gary Oldman in it. But I, I watched the movie and we left and he was amused that I was so blown away by it because he was like, yes, yeah, you know, that's how the books go. <laughs> so at that point I felt completely like I, I have to read these books. I still suffered through book one and two reading them. I, I, they did the films justice in that way because they were equally as boring and <laughs> young and too young for me. It's I'm sorry, not boring. It, too young for me. They were equally as too young for me. There was a huge step up for Pr- Prisoner of Azkaban that made this movie more accessible to the generation that missed Harry Potter. And this this is where it started for me. I started reading the books at this point. So uh, what were your expectations coming into it this time, Mary? I, I mean, I knew this was probably my favorite Harry Potter film. So, I, I mean, I knew I liked the movie, but I hadn't actually seen it in a while. And I have to admit, I'm a little bit guilty of things bleeding together. Like, was there some stuff from the fourth movie that I was kind of thinking was in this one? Yeah, I kind of, kind of had a little bit of that going on. And I think that just having learned so much about the making of film as the course of Russell, of Russell, you know, starting this podcast and you guys like bringing all these awesome movies to my awareness. I was really struck by, you can say some of them sucked. It's what? okay. I know. We, I, I, I know we've probably made you suffer through at least one. There's at least one that you're like, I hate, you know, I'm pretty sure there was one that Chad was like, don't watch this one. This was not for you. <laughs> this was one of his horror movie picks. Um, yeah, he knows I do not like gross out kind of stuff. So uh, 
can trust Chad. If Chad says, do not watch this, I'm going to take his opinion on that. <laughs> I, I appreciate you glossing over it, but I'm sitting here thinking like I've had more than one that we've watched where I'm like, ah, so. <laughs> uh, well, that may be true, but there's some awesome movies that I would have never seen otherwise. So I have to give you guys credit for that. that yeah. So in kind of watching this with a more critical eye, I started to really appreciate the art that went into this film and what the director brought to the table because I think it elevates it above the two movies that came before it. So I really got, I'm glad I got a chance to really look at that closely. Absolutely. And Bethany? I have pretty high expectations. This, this is a franchise that I don't get too far away from. My family, my immediate family, my husband and I were, were big fans of, uh, of of the films and the the books and the, the theme park. I mean, the whole the whole thing. Actually, in the, the time between Christmas and New Year's, when you have that little bit of downtime, we rewatched the entire film franchise from film, you know, one to, you know, it's seven and a half, eight, uh, however they count them. So I, I, I had the, the high expectations just that it's something that I enjoy, but knowing I was preparing for this podcast, I did want to give it a more studied eye. You paid a little more attention to the soundtrack, to the um, cinematography, to the directing, but before it's just something that I consumed purely for, for the pleasure of it. Um, and I found that it was, it held up well under scrutiny and it wasn't just my kind of fondness for the, for the material and, it's nice because, hey, I, you feel validated for enjoying it. Like, oh, it's just, it really is good. It's not that I just, I like it, but it really is good. Mary, was there anything on this time through that, that changed your perspective of it or did it just reinforce? Uh, it kind of reinforced my perspective. And this is one of those beautiful movies that I find something new in each time I watch it. So I pick up on details that I might have missed in previous viewings and that is something that really makes me love a movie agreed bethany did you have any like epiphanies on this one because we watched all the films together i was able to pick up some little things they did in this film that would be would, would play more importance in later films and how they, they carried through you could really appreciate the continuity of it maybe in a way that you don't when you only watch a film you know with a couple years separating it Gotcha. Yeah, good point. And and Mary, do you feel like it still holds up? Like there's nothing in this that you're like, that's super dated? Oh, I definitely have something that I want to talk about for Change One Thing. <laughs> okay. But in the spirit of the film, I could go ahead and cover that now if you'd like. <laughs> no, no, no. I, save it. Save it. Saving it. I, 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 I am Mr. Like, I want this to come out of my mouth right now, but it's part of my end result. So, uh, uh, Bethany, do you have anything for in terms of how this holds up? I mean, just minor plot holes. It, it's such a glaring, like, thing that they, they, they it's not even a translation from book to movie. It's just. Lumos Maxima? Yeah, when they open and he's practicing magic under the blanket, yeah. like within five minutes, they're like, oh, you're worried you're going to get expelled for inadvertently using magic. I'm like, you guys, yeah. this yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually, I, I walked into the theater with that one. Like I went in with my brother and I'm sitting there remembering the fact that I hated the first two films. I shouldn't say hate. I was not in the headspace to enjoy the first two films and i'm like this guy right here is just asking for it 
Like, look at him just just to tick off his his aunt and uncle. He's just doing it. And obviously, as the the movie went on, I was just like, all right, well, I guess they picked him up in a flying car in the last movie, so it's it's fine. It's, <laughs> it's the president of all magic shows up and says, ah, you blew up your aunt. It's good. You're good. All <laughs> oh, forgiven. Ah. ah. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were going to talk about there's a scene where and, and Russell was popped in for like a couple minutes while I was watching it. And then he he, he pointed that out and then I couldn't get I couldn't get my mind off of it. Harry Potter walks into <laughs> McGonagall and the the one guy are talking with the owner of the um, of the pub. Invisibility cloak. The invisibility cloak. Invisibility yes, cloak. he walks in the room with that on and she closes the door behind Harry. Harry's in the room in the, with a closed door. How does he get out without them knowing? I have not been able to get my head past that. <laughs> let's let's talk about how it's there's ghouls and ghosts and bewitchments abound. I mean, I think that that once you put enough magic into a space, i.e., Hogwarts, Hogsmeade, any place where witch and wizards uh, congregate in mass, I feel like. It becomes, uh, and Russell, enjoy this. It becomes a Kevin Garnett, anything is possible. <laughs> so if the door just opens, someone runs out and it closes, they're probably just like, ah, that's normal. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, look, invisibility, invisibility cloaks are very rare. Why would your head go straight to that when it could have just been, it could have been an errant spell. Could have been a ghost. Could Yeah, true. Kid, kids very being true. kids. Who that knows? is a really I good mean, point. Nargles, I like that answer. It could. Any Quibbler article will tell you it could be any litany of things. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a brief <laughs> advertising break in which we're not going to dissect movies that aren't this movie. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we missed, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals. Like you. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. All right, guys, we are back and we're about to run down a plot summary of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. So if you have not seen this movie yet, hit pause, watch the movie. It is totally worth it. You should probably watch the first two first. The film starts, as most Harry Potter films do, with the absolute worst family anyone has ever been cursed with. Seriously the worst. After losing his temper at some fake news dribbled from his aunt and subsequently blowing her already bulbous form up, he runs for it. At this moment of need, the night bus appears and whisks Harry Potter from danger to the leaky cauldron and Harry is introduced to the ministry minister of magic for the first time at the cauldron Ron's dad Arthur tells Harry there is a chance Sirius Black notorious mass murderer and astronomically the most metal name ever 
might be trying to find and kill him. You know the usual year at Hogwarts. On the way to Hogwarts, the train is stopped by the Dementors of Azkaban, and we get our first glimpse at Professor R.J. Lupin, who fights one off, who fights one off of latching to our own Mr. Potter. In divination class, we'll all survive the in divination class. Harry gets the prognosis of death from Professor Trelawney. We get a really good idea of the various classes students take in this year with highlights with DADA with Professor Lupin as they take on a boggart and thus Harry has his second Dementor experience and leads him to being under the tutelage of one of his father's closest friends. More seeming attempts to reach Harry Potter unfold as the plot thickens, even more when Harry learns that Sirius Black betrayed his parents to Voldemort. The introduction of the Marauder's Map by Fred and George by, as a way of Harry getting to Hogsmeade introduces yet another twist as Harry sees the name of Peter Pettigrew on it, a friend of the Potters, long thought dead at the hands of Sirius Black. The movie ends for the first time as a creature gets executed for some Malfoy mischief and Sirius, after revealing that it was indeed a very alive Peter Pettigrew that betrayed Lily and James to Voldemort, dies at the hands of the Dementors. All are returned to the infirmary for an omniscient Albus Percival Wolfert Brian Dumbledore clues the gang in on how not to just save Sirius's life, but also Buckbeak's. The matter swirls to a climax as turn of time leads to several lives being saved and the most awesome Patronus being summoned. We learned that Harry Potter is Sirius's godson, and I also didn't mention Buckbeak at all, or the Time Turner. There was a lot here. Yeah, that's it's a really hard movie to do. I, I think you did a fine job. It's a lot to unpack. <laughs> Let's talk about characters. I'll start with Aunt Marge. Aunt Ferris, she still scared me from where she played Matilda, or played as a trunchbull in Matilda. I was just like, she's the same terrifying, like, Oh, that's woman. her? I didn't <laughs> yeah. realize that. Um, so that was one of my first impressions when the movie starts, and I was like, he's still large and scary and mean, so, uh. <laughs> I'm happy that they were housing a good guy, because if they were housing Malfoy, like, I would have left them to whatever fate Voldemort would have had for them. I mean, I gotta tell you, every, every movie I had watched up to this point, I was like, man, I hope someone kills his aunt and uncle Uncle Sin. Sin. <laughs> like that was my takeaway from a lot of this i was like I, I i can't the fact that he's still going back to these people and the fact that they know he's still going back to these people wow yeah there's some questionable like practices in the wizarding world um I, i'll get into some of them in, in the movie that i want to raise it's like i guess it is for his protection but is there no other blood relative or how about an intervention like i honestly thought like could he just live with the weasleys they would be fine with yet another kid. Like, that would be fine. Like, at some point, he does just live with them, right? I don't know if there's a, a latter piece where they talk about what happened to Potter's... The grandparents. I, I don't know what happened to the grandparents. I don't know if she ever addresses this, but I'm like, this is nuts. Like, Sirius Black even says at one point, I was always welcome at the Potters. Like, clearly Sirius went home to... James's parents at some point. I feel like there was a whole point of we're going to kill the entire family outright just so it's not weird. <laughs> well, it's part of the whole allegory of like 
the unexpected hero, you know, like whether King Arthur or Luke Skywalker, like you have to be completely off of everyone else's radar. You're sort of in hiding. But to get to, to Mary's point, it's important in, in the story later that he, ha- he has to stay with a blood relative for you know, the protection. But again, like, just because they're the blood relative, because someone else is not talking like, hey, maybe you don't treat your kid like garbage. One minor detail that you'll notice in, in the difference between the earlier movies and this one, Harry's actually wearing like clothes that fit him. And I think that's part of he's building confidence. He's not, you know, accepting wearing Dudley's hand-me-downs and he has access to his own like money. And so it's just one of those differences you pick up in the films is in the first um, one or two, he's wearing like super oversized, you know, grayed out Dudley hand-me-downs. And this one, he's wearing appropriately fitting clothes. He's buttoned up. Um, I think it's showing a maturity and a confidence building and some separation from his dependence on them as like his caregivers. Oh, a hundred, hundred percent. Lily's parents, I, I'm Petunia's parents feasibly still alive. They were proud. They had a witch in the family. So I'm like, maybe there, maybe there instead of like, these are terrible people. Like these people exist and they're awful and you knew about it. And I understand that he's a better person because of it, but there's damage. (laughs) There's damage being done. My intro to Harry Potter was like, wizards don't care what happens to this kid. He's a savior, but we're going to put him in this crapshoot. And not check in with him for like a decade. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like 10 years. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's something that, kind of was empowering to harry though because when he let like when he decided to leave it was his choosing so maybe people wanted him to get old enough to where he wanted to make that decision on his own that's the only kind of justification i could come up with for this odd situation it was one of the things that until i read uh hunger games i never really appreciated correctly if you take an adolescent 11 years old on and try to kill him multiple times through every single year of his adolescence, not only would he be more messed up than Mad-Eye Moody, who took the job as a, an adult and then had those experiences, but he would be, like, this is, this is psyche-breaking. You had eight of your formative years of someone trying to murder you all the time. End of Hunger Games, it was three years, and she is a mess. She's a hermit. She lives in a closet. It it irritated me so much thinking about Harry Potter after reading Hunger Games, because I'm like, yes, PTSD is real. Why is this kid would not, like, he would be the next Voldemort. I'm not saying, like, evil. I'm just saying he would be the next, like, I'm not a sound body of mind at this point, because, like, it if someone tried to kill you when you were 11 and then 12 and then 13 and then 14 and then 15 and then 16 and then 17, you'd be messed up. Well, like, in fact, we're sort of ignoring the fact that he essentially killed someone his first year. <laughs> true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody Your face melted. You. You yeah. I don't know. After living with the Dursleys, maybe just this is like, so not that big of a deal. <laughs> Like somebody trying to kill him, like, oh, this is so much preferable uh, to being at home. Like, there's no, like, therapy. He's like, back to the Dursleys. Like, there's no, like, there's no debriefing. That this year, I melted a guy's face with my hands. 
y'all should give me a bedroom. <laughs> Dumbledore's like, here, eat some every flavor beans, and back to the Dursley tree. <laughs> ah, earwax. Earwax. Everything's fine and jovial. Alas, earwax. But like, whoop, and here's some chocolate, it'll make it better. He just had his soul sucked on. Have some chocolate. <laughs> It helps. It really does. I'm sorry, but I, you know, have not read the book, but I was so suspicious of Lupin because I was like, what's in this chocolate? I mean, he keeps giving Harry this chocolate. chocolate. It can't be good. It's fine. No, Russell's going to be like so mad at me at all the stuff he's going to cut out. Oh, this is, this is, this is, this is like Tweak in South Park. It's all right, Tweak. Have some more coffee. Have, Have some chocolate, Tweak. Everything's fine. Your hair looks fantastic. Have you guys ever seen any movies by this director before, Bethany? I had. I didn't realize they were his films until doing the research for this one. One of his older movies, I think, is the 1995 version of Little Princess. I remember seeing um, was a childhood favorite. Um, and then, of course, Children of Men and Gravity are kind of the big names. This one is one that I think, oh, I enjoy all of these films, and I obviously enjoy the one we're reviewing. And it's a Nice connection there. Mary? I've seen Children of Men. I think that's the only one of his that I've seen other than this. But I was so impressed at the way the director approached making this a more mature movie, you know, as Harry and the other main characters are growing up. we He switched into a tone of movie that's more appropriate for them at that age. And it does so beautifully without without it feeling like it's completely disconnected from the first two movies it's sort of it's more grown up and it allows the whole rest of the series to kind of expand beyond that i think this was a really important movie to get right in terms of tone so i'm really kind of very impressed with the creation aspect of this film just in general and what it goes on to do for the whole franchise I 100% agree with you on this. Uh, I do think there is a disconnect in terms of if you were to watch every single Harry Potter movie seamlessly, there is a huge, like it's, you're, you're changing tracks with this movie um, based on the, the lighthearted world of magic that came from movies one and two to this one. Uh, but this does do a hundred percent credit to everything that comes after it. Like at this point, a person from prison is coming to kill you or so you think. And it sets up why the past happened the way it happened to fixing that narrative to what's real and what will happen in the rest of this setting up his support structure. Look, I I'm a huge fan of gravity and children of men. They were two movies that kind of hit me out of left field. We saw children of men and I was like, where did this come from? Like, this is like that. It was a profoundly deep movie. And, uh, yeah. So when he got, uh, uh, tapped for this movie, I didn't see it until after the the film had come out, but I was like, yep, that makes a lot of sense because it's, it is very, it's much more gritty than the previous films. As far as cinematography goes, did you guys feel like, like, give me your departure from previous Harry Potter film thoughts, Bethany. So I think that the first two films, the Christopher Columbus films, they definitely had just 
a completely different color palette, lots of, you know, warm, you know, everything is basically candlelit. Like it just felt very warm. I, I think as far as like the whole film franchise is important for those two films to follow so closely to the books and really get like the trust of the fan base. And so I think the Christopher Columbus films are, are important for that and that they sort of did need the shift in filmmaking at this time because Harry was growing up, the story was getting more mature and we needed that grittiness. He does it in so many subtle ways, whether it's changing the title from the gold to silver to right from the beginning, even if it's um, you don't pick up on it consciously, it's, it's a different color palette. It is cooler, it is grittier. A right. lot of these are the flat lighting, just the whole you know, tonal shift. I think maybe it's if some of the films going, they maybe go too far and they go almost like, you know, dark night where it's like so dark you can't tell what's going on. But I think this one reaches that, you know, a lot of subtle shifts that add up to um, collectively is a more mature, a more, um, it, the other two movies are more like you're listening to a, a story, a bedtime story, and you weren't quite as immersed in the, in the world where this one, he, he let the kids have more control over their uniforms. So every kid didn't look the same manicured little, like, you know, perfect student. They, you know, all those subtle details, it, it made you feel more immersed in, in the film instead of just being told a story, which is kind of how the first two films felt like. I think that's that, that's really a good point. There definitely looked like it was a bunch of teenagers being like, ah, gosh, why am I this? Yeah, I'm wearing it. A little it. bit more rebellion, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I get that. Look, we're, 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 we're at 13 at this point. Yeah, we can get some angst in there. Angst, angst. <laughs> Mary uh, what were your thoughts so some things I wanted to point out were just how the transitions in the movie seem to be sort of set up by time you know you have the the clock tower and all the gears you often have a transition in the movie happening in that way and you also have sort of frequently we go back to the Whomping Willow and it's showing you the season change so it's giving you throughout the whole movie this sort of sense of time. And I think that's really a very cool way to subtly put that thought into your mind before you introduce the concept of time traveling into the film. You don't really know that's going on yet, but there's these sort of hints that kind of allude to the passage of time. And the other thing is, so, and I did watched some YouTube uh, videos, talked about the cinema photography for this, and I think it's really interesting that people were pointing out, and you, you really do get a feeling for this, but I had to have somebody point it out to me, that there's a lot of spatial dynamic in the film, and there's a focus on Hogwarts and the architecture and the layout of Hogwarts. You get a better sense for, as characters are moving around the scene, you get a much better sense for the geography. You understand where Hagrid's hut is for the first time. You understand sort of Hogwarts becomes this place that is starting to be its own character, and they often take the camera really far out so that the characters, so that so Harry will be really tiny in the screen, but you're seeing sort of a vast view, really kind of putting the characters in this larger setting. I think that feels very different from the other movies in a good way. Well, that's some of the things I was reading. The director, Alfonso, he made some of those changes. Like, he actually changed the location of the Wampin' Willow from 
the second movie when the car crashes into it and he introduced like the clock tower mm. so he made some pretty you know deliberate moves in establishing the the footprint the blueprint of the of, of the school and i think because he he was thinking of it spatially instead of just maybe a, a storyboard or a sequence of shots which is how the other films made sort of, you know felt more like these episodes it was navigating a place oh that's interesting to know that he made those choices mm-hmm. consciously one of the things that i did kind of go back and appreciate later for the first two movies is the fact that in the wizard in the wizarding world they are willing to accept these really really lethal things as a normal fact of life so you have a whomping willow that'll kill you uh you're like you have the whole jovial thing between fred george and harry in his first quidditch game no one's died in ages like there's this piece where that like that worry that like this is potentially damaging to an 11 year old boy right ah where, Snape, where is, Snape being there's, like, there's loss magic. of limb does not excuse you from getting your right, essay in. Right. It doesn't matter oh, if you yeah. lose a limb. Yeah. I mean, hospital wing, <laughs> any manner of malady. I mean, dang, like some serious <laughs> stuff. So it, it, it becomes one of those things that I really started to appreciate starting with this movie that you're like, Ron, look where you are. Oh, crap. I'm at the tree that could kill me on school property. <laughs> like, Nuts! <laughs> and a deliberately uh, for its lethal properties, like <laughs> right for its lethal properties to help a werewolf student to help a werewolf student have a place to he needs a safe space. And, and we'll, we'll, we're gonna plant a killer tree to make sure you don't accidentally wander into the werewolf, the, the killer well, the killer werewolf. That's awesome. That's I I love the mentality there. That's that's phenomenal. The unsupervised werewolf, by the way, like you have a child, except a child with a chronic medical condition, they put in a shack and just they want him. Except, <laughs> except for his friends who unlawfully become animagi, in order to help him control himself. <laughs> Where was the school, guys? Where was this? I want to go to this school. I want to go to the school where we could just do absolute lunacy under the tutelage of a guy who's brilliant and also a little nuts too. And you're just like, ah, it'll all be fine. Yeah, it's good. It's all good. (laughs) I, 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 I feel like at some point that clicked with me and I'm like, I love the insanity of this. Like the way that none of this would ever fly in anything other than a magical world where literally stuff could happen at any point in time. And I am saying stuff instead of the other word, but seriously, like, wow, the level of crap happens in this world is wild. But if it happens to Malfoy, it's not okay. No, not okay at all. I I, got to tell you, I'll I'll watch Emma Watson punch him in the face (laughs) on repeat. I just... Like that's a good hit. That was a good right. I mean, I was I was proud of her. I was. I, was I do her. love how she got to see herself do it. Mm, that's true. No, yeah, it's like that's that's quality replay. It's like, oh, that's a good hit. I just... <laughs> He's going the time turtles back and forth. Over watch and over. it several times. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> guys, watch this. Guys, guys, guys. One more time. One more time. <laughs> Watch his nose break. Watch his nose break. 
<laughs> that was one of my 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 notes is that like the wizarding world like if there is a delightfully chaotic way to achieve the same result they go for that like you don't just have a bus that picks people up you have a triple decker purple bus with a chandelier in the middle because why not hundred <laughs> percent like that's the i i feel like whatever happened in jk rowling's mind to create this world that nonsense happens in my mind and i just thought it was alone for years i was just like okay you know those weird things you think and you're like shut up brain she didn't tell it to shut up and then she wrote a book and it was amazing and and shame on you yeah there you go so absolutely So another thing about the cinema photography is the long shot. The director loves long shots, and there's some really cool ones in this. The um, scene in the Leaky Cauldron, you have to hand it to those actors. You know, for the most part, it's Harry and Ron's dad. That's a beautifully crafted shot with the two of them moving into different locations of the Leaky Cauldron to talk in privacy. And every time they, like, reposition, they have, like, Sirius's poster, like, framed in between them. That is just, if you think about what would have gone into filming that entire shot with no cuts in it, it's just stunning. Like, I watched that several times. I was like, I can't believe they they really did this long shot without breaking in that. It's nice. Yeah, that, the first time I saw that, I just thought, that's craftsmanship. Right. It's a craft. And and I'll say this, like, I feel like the first two movies did really follow a certain, like, specific frame rate for what you're expecting. I thought this one broke rules in a very subdued way. Like, it wasn't that they were trying to, to, to keep you off kilter, but it did it in a way that you were off kilter. The whole movie, you weren't on solid footing you don't know what's going on like things keep adding up like every time you think there's like the twist it's not the twist and they did a really good way or really good job of not only keeping the vibe the atmosphere of the film very cold to the point where you're like i i am very uncertain and I feel like it really led to the the culmination where Harry really decides to curse Snape. I want to hear this out. I want to know what really happened. Because, I mean, if you're a person who, like, you got some hate in your heart for Sirius Black for a certain amount of time, like, you only get to make that choice based on there's enough wrong here that I have questions and now I need them answered. And I feel like that's also a turning point for Harry Potter going forward. Yeah, I think that it shows that he's starting to question the things around him, things that he's being told. Or before he's been the little kid and he's just kind of been told over and over, you're the, the boy who lived, you're, you know, you're this hero. And he, he's been given very little information about his parents, his past, even the, the wizarding world, like the most basic stuff. He just he grew up with muggles. He doesn't understand this world. He and so now he's starting to ask questions for himself. I won't go like too deeply into it because it's it's one of my superlatives, but I feel like this was the first movie that with every subsequent movie has one absolutely indignant or well-placed line that summed up the movie 
from this point on. Like, just one where I was like, yep, that's that's it right there. <laughs> just something done with such feeling that it hits you. You know, like when you hear a, when you hear a line being uttered and it just like, it hits you and you're like, wow, that, that's, you know, that's important. How about wardrobe? Yeah, you know, we, we, we discussed how, you know, the kids have, have loosened it up. They've got the collars undone. What's our feeling on Hogwarts in year three? Mary. You know, it's, wardrobe is so spot on in this movie. The consistency of this sort of eccentric feeling to the wizard characters. You know, nobody, like, walks around. <laughs> at the mall <laughs> dressed like <laughs> i mean even i mean i'm not just talking i'm not really talking about the uniforms but in- everybody has their own sort of eccentric look about them and i think that that is just so fun spot on it feels really it feels really suiting to the characters just as a general comment but you have wonderful wardrobe moments like you know the serious black looks like he came he crawled out of a prison like there's nothing so, sort of that makes you in any way question or take you out of uh, what's going on in the movie. It's just so beautifully put together. Just tag on to the end of that. I think one of the things that, that was lost in the movie that you really gain in the books is why he looks like he just got drug out. I mean, you know he escaped from Azkaban, but there's been a time gap between when he escapes and when you know Harry actually goes face to face with him. It's that time gap that he literally stopped for nothing to get to Harry Potter and to get to Peter Pettigrew and why. And that's why he still looks like that. Well, yeah, he's he's running around in animal form, like not going anywhere to get <laughs> take a bath or anything. Like well, it, it, it's more, I mean, it's magic. I mean, you can fix teeth, you can fix right. hair, you can fix, you know, it's magic. So it, it's more the single-minded, like, I have to get here because my godson's best friend has a rat that killed his parents. <laughs> like, to put it succinctly. Right, like, right. Okay, so I just have a question about that. I have to ask, I have to ask. That creeps me out so much that the Weasleys just had Peter Pettigrew living with them. I mean, who knows? He could have, like, been watching the kids, like, undress or take a bath. It's like, what? One, one, again, books, but, like, again. I haven't, I don't know. Book people maybe clarify this for me because it keeps me up at night. (laughs) They, they they address it in a very minor way that makes it maybe not as creepy as that. But So if a rat gets in our house, that would be horrible in its own. But then I'm going to be thinking, is it is it a man? Like, is it a person? Is rat? it really a person? Is this a person? Is rat? it Peter Pettigrew? Uncommonly long for a rat. <laughs> is it missing a toe? <laughs> Check and see if it's missing a toe. David. <laughs> If it's missing anything, it's probably a wizard. <laughs> there's a wizard war happening right now. It's missing part of its tail because there's a wizard war. 100%. <laughs> Things, um, mu- banner. Things muggles worry about. I like it. I like it. Um, I'll just add on to the, the, the wardrobe uh, comment. The, what I said about the, the uniforms that the director gave the had the extras, the, the students more leeway in their, you know, how they wore their, their uniforms so that lended some authenticity. 
And then all the other touches, Hagrid wearing his hairy suit as he's standing in the lake, like skipping stones. I mean, it's the most hideous garment ever created. And that's how, kind of how I pictured him. Like if Hagrid had a suit, it would look like him. I mean, just this, and it's described as a hairy suit. So that was, um, you know, a great envisioning of that suit. And the the fact that for most of the movie, the three main actors, or I guess the two main actors, you know, Harry and uh, Hermione are wearing essentially the same clothes for a good chunk of the movie and how those clothes get dirty and worn and tore um, between kind of the first run and then the second run. I think it's a great way to kind of distinguish those, you know, those two tracks and kind of imagining how, how Ron must have been like in the hospital bed, seeing them kind of okay and clean. And then when they appear again and they're so much more like, you know, gritty and worn and how do you explain that? <laughs> I think that what my rebuttal to the the rat piece would be would be if you're a rat for 12 years that maybe you just revert to rat instincts and like you are less human and more just thinking rat if you're in that form for that period of time. So you're trying to justify Peter Pettigrew's going to live with the weasel. I no, I I'm just trying to make it less creepy. It's creepy. It's, it just is creepy. Problematic. Feel like, I, like I feel the need to make it less creepy. And when they finally do like turn him back into a person, like he's very rat in his personage. So like maybe yeah. being a rat that long like you just end up being ratish. And so when he bit Ron, so does Ron need antibiotics now? <laughs> like I'm concerned. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had issues also with like with the change back. I knew they were trying to acknowledge that he'd been a rat for so long, but like serious when he converts, you know, back to human form, he's purely just man. And when Professor McGonagall goes back and forth between like a cat and her, like she's just herself, and he was the only one that kept some of those animalistic well, yeah, but, things. But uh, all, it was an extended period of time, I guess, is what they're going all, for. All I'm saying, Maybe. yeah, exactly. All I'm saying is McGonagall hasn't been a co- uh, cat for twelve years. True. Like. I'm sure you, yeah. And Maggie Smith, I mean. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> All right, so this movie got a lot of attention for its uh, special effects and lighting. Is there any one thing that just really blew your mind, Bethany? There's a lot. And we talk about this, some of the long shots and getting the sense of place in a way that was never, you didn't really come through some of the other films, earlier films. That is going on. It's just, it's just different kind of in every way. It established an atmosphere all its own. Yeah, I think the it's a really beautiful movie in the way that it's shot. And, I, you know, I think that a lot of the technology that went into it was really well executed. Like, like Buckbeak is beautiful. So well done. But Lupin, not so much. You know, I feel like we should have seen sure. a little less of Lupin transforming because maybe people thought it looked good at the time and now, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Sirius, we don't ever see him transform. So I feel like that's more successful. We just all of a sudden see him and he's in his wolf version. Right. We're not actually seeing Sirius transform into the animal. And it's actually the same thing with Peter Pettigrew. They kind of shove him into the wall with the moment when he transforms, keeping you keeping them from having to do the technical feat of showing him turning from a rat into a human. I think that they should have used that same level of thoughtfulness for when Lupin transforms, because I think it would age a little bit better. 
Okay. Yeah, it kind of showed the, the conflict of his transforming, but it was tough to to be on screen kind of un- uninterrupted that long. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I think they did a good job of filming things, you know, in Scotland, kind of on location, actually building Hagrid's hut. I know on this podcast, you guys talk a lot about the the practical effects and the value that, you know, having something tangible you can hold up and then the special effects on top of that. So I think they had enough built in and they, they relied some, so much on where they could things physically in the environment. And then the special effects were a tool and not just the sole you know, engine of, of the movie. I thought it was super interesting. Like, and I, I know they go more into this in the book than they do in the movie, but I also think it's interesting that with the, the absence of James Potter, Sirius having to control Lupin on his own. Like the whole idea of them all becoming Animagi was that Peter Pettigrew hit the knot on the tree to open the door to get Padfoot and Prongs the ability to get Mooney into the, the thing, given that you have a stag, a stag and a dog. So it, I having knowing that uh, that piece, like watching Sirius still trying to do what it used to take two to do, was an emotional piece in that. Like he's going to bat for Harry. It weakened him to an, enough to the point where he couldn't fight off the mentors at that point, even though he sort of won. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I felt like that was also an emotional piece of the movie, like watching, you know, Sirius really go to bat, even though he's gone through 12 years, not unlike, you know, Harry's 12 years. You know, Harry's done it from a, a young person standpoint what Sirius has done from an adult standpoint with, you know, Dementors and, and real horror. So anyway, I it, it became one of those things where I was seeing parallels between you know, the, the, the torture that the heroes are really going through in order to still do heroic things in the end. Yeah, I hadn't thought about Sirius trying to control Lupin on his own without James, and that's a very poignant, poignant piece. So as a non-book reader, I actually didn't realize that that's how they got um, Lupin to, you know, be isolated inside the Whomping Willow when it's a full moon. I didn't understand, like... what all went into that yeah basically you have like you have two bouncers yeah which were Sirius and james as a dog and a stag and then you have Pettigrew, who was the gatekeeper something small enough to get past the whomping willow to pacify it and then they would basically corral lupin into the shrieking shack that's really cool somehow i missed that where they have a party where they have a party movies yeah it's not in the movie. That's actually when we get into my change one thing because um because I had read the book, my brain automatically filled in a lot of those gaps and then re- I'm the same way. Yeah. Like and, and, that, and that was. Well, it had been so long since I'd read the book, and actually since I've seen the movie, I was like, oh, the movie doesn't cover this stuff. It doesn't explain that. Like it really took two to to do what they were doing, and then when it when it came to Harry's life being in danger. Sirius was just like, all right. I got to do it. Here we go. But, but yeah, but Mary, the, the yeah, movie, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs, I mean, that's the four. I think this is a perfect time to roll into superlatives. Yes. So this is hands down the most fun part of this. I know it wasn't the most fun part for this movie because it's really difficult to choose. But Mary, 
MVP. So I thought I had to give it to the director, Alfonso Curon. Yeah, I felt that this movie stands out because of the artfulness that he approached the movie and the bringing this movie to life. I mean, there's so many amazing actors. Without him, I I gave it like... to a college last time. <laughs> I did. I did. The last one I was on, I gave it to a whole college. So, <laughs> so yeah, the director. Okay, so Mary, thank you for saying for saying that one because that's actually who I had, but I really struggled. Oh, sorry, so didn't mean to take yours. Thank you, thank you. Recognize the director, so I'll go with where my heart really lay, and um, Gary Oldman as um, Sirius Black. Uh, I know he he actually has very limited screen time. I meant to look up how much he was on there, but it's, it it doesn't it doesn't matter. Um, I mean, it, it is Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and that's just and you couldn't really get anybody else to play that part. And then in the subsequent movies, uh, to see him transform from like the the almost savage, like, refugee character into this sort of quasi-fatherly, brotherly guardian is serious Black. Uh, I 1,000% agree. I To this day, I tell people at work, Gary Oldman got me into Harry Potter. <laughs> like, it, it took Gary Oldman to get me into Harry Potter. And it's true, because, like, I took my brother to see this movie. I was like, Gary Oldman's in this. Like, I'm kind of down for this. And... Seeing the party played, I was like, that was, I'm about to read these books. Like, <laughs> Gary Oldman got me into Harry Potter. All right. Best supporting actor or actress, Bethany. This one I, I really debated on, uh, but I'm going to have to go with, I'm not sure if I say his last name right, David Dulles, um, Remus Lupin. Yeah, uh, he he's really the, the thread that kind of ties it all together between, you know, modern Harry and his past. Um, and there are so many points of just vulnerability, whether it's his health and revealing, um, you know, his, his own loss of like, you know, Harry lost his parents, but he lost his friends. He just plays that part so beautifully. I give it to him. We are two for two here, Mary. <laughs> Supporting <laughs> cast. I mean, that that's a hard one to do when <laughs> there's so many phenomenal actors in here and I was going to give it to Gary Oldman but you guys kind of like made him MVP already and seriously he's <laughs> one of my favorite actors ever and it was such a critical role if if we didn't get on board with him the moment that we see him the whole movie would have failed so it was real he's just I mean he's critical to this movie but I'm gonna go sort of a different direction with this and say the Dementors. They really brought it. They were terrifying. This was horror movie level stuff. And in terms of technology working, I felt that they held up. They, you know, just they were so convincing. They're scary to this day, and that's what gives you the tension in the movie. I agree. I agree. It, I think one of the things that uh, upon rewatching this really struck me was, you know, we always uh, kick around the meme, take my money. If you gave me a, uh, a Disney plus TV show of Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot and Prongs, their hijinks and Hogwarts, I'd be like, take my money, take my money. Or, or, or even if they decided to do it for the big screen and did the first Voldemort war, I mean, Take my money, man. Take my money. Like, show me this. I want to see 
I want to see like the Peverils, you know, die like heroes. Like I, I, I want to see this stuff, man. I want to see the stuff that they talk about throughout these books happening in the first one with that, you know, that despair that we can't win. Or I'm sorry, the Pruitts, the Pruitts die like heroes. And I, I, I want to see that. I want to see that stuff. So there's so much in the greater Harry Potter world that I feel like, let me get that MCU stuff going here. Let me get that MCU stuff going. Like, come on. The audience is there. We're ready. Here's my money. It's there. The audience is there. Just... Yeah. Like, take, take, all you got to do is take my money. All you got to <laughs> do. Uh, uh, Hidden Gem, Bethany. Okay, so this one is a nod to the book a little bit, but the, the scene where they're coming up the, uh, the staircase and kind of the, the portrait gallery and Sirius Black has just attacked the, the fat lady, which I hate saying. I feel like I'm body shaming. That's her name, fat lady. When you're, they're showing all the time the portraits behind the students gathering, you'll see a knight kind of chaotically run through the various portraits. And that's Sir Cadogan. He, he's sort of a bit of comic relief in the book. And after the fat lady is attacked, she's too afraid to stand guard of the, the portal to the Gryffindor Tower. So he is the new gatekeeper. And he's just this wild little knight. And he's always chasing his fat pony who keeps running away. And so that was just, that's something they threw in for the book fans of this. This is, you know, almost slapstick, like night tumbling through all the portraits in the in the background. Mary? So speaking of the fat lady, which also seems weird that that's what she's credited as, she's Dawn French. She's a British comedian. I love her. She's She's got a sketch comedy show that's been really successful in for many years, and she's she has a show that I wa- used to watch called The Vicar of Dibley, where she's the main character. She is awesome. I love Don French. I, it was so fun to see her in this. Is she the fat lady in the book? Like, I'm struggling to remember what they call her in the book, but is, she's is called it the fat actually, lady. Is it, yes, it is the fat it lady? Is. Okay. It's, okay. And that was a change uh, in, I know we're, we're, we're pushing for time, but that was a change by the director and like the first two, the, the, the portrait was kind of just like a, a gif and that she didn't have any personality right. in this movie right. she was a dimensional character with a personality so. i i think that it may have happened during our our freeze frame but uh what my hidden gem was initially the the double double toil and trouble that whole coral piece with the giant toads actually like being a part <laughs> of it that was such a cool intro to hogwarts for that point you know they always do something different but I also had to give a nod out because I couldn't do supporting. I couldn't do MVP for this. And those are really the two avenues for actors. But I've got to give a shout out to Lenny Henry as the shrunken head. Take it away, Ern! I love, like, the freaking night bus. Like, that's where I want to work. Like, that's <laughs> Hey, don't get the pea soup. You better eat it before I eat you. Like, I... Like, I'm loving what's happened on the night bus. I was like, I want to be on the night bus on on the regular. I love the night bus. (laughs) Take it away, hey, boys, why the long faces? Like, loved it. Loved it. That's my favorite song from the whole soundtrack, just the the, the chaotic horns and zips and bells. It's like, they, (laughs) you hear that, you're, you're immediately, like, transported to the night bus. Oh, the night bus was great. I did wonder what is what would that be like if I picked up that book and read it, had having not seen the movie, would I be like, what is mm. this? 
like, it seems like one of those things that was so crazy they actually attempted it on film. Two, two and a half, two and three quarters. Yes, yes. There are so many great, like, verbal cues in this where, like, when I think of this movie, I think of this, like, verbal piece. Two and three quarters. Like, I love it. Just absolutely love it. Um, recast. All right. I know everyone struggled, but got to do it. Bethany, recast. Okay. Um, so I knew I wouldn't be recasting kind of the main cores. I think swapping any of them is like swapping out like somebody in the whole universe. So I had a feeling to do somebody kind of introduce in this, you know, movie, whether it's the, 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 the three you know, friends and Wormtail or Peter Pettigrew is really the one I want to recast. But nothing against uh, Timothy Spall. He, um, he, he plays the character that you sort of hate and disgust very well, probably too well. And, and my thought is that you know, Peter or your Wormtail, he had to have something, whether it was like a pity or a vulnerability that would make Remus and Luke, or Remus and Sirius and James be his friend. And there was nothing likable whenever he becomes you know, human form. Right. So I tried to think about you know, British actors of the same age, you know, who was somebody that could likely have been recast. And I think uh, Toby Jones could have brought something just that little thread of kind of the same way, like, you know, Gollum or Smeagol, you, you right. feel from a little bit, like, it's the, all these horrible things he does, and you're cowardly, you're spiteful, whatever, but there's that mm. little thread that, um, not redeeming, but like a vulnerability, or like, you, you pity this character, and I want, I want Wormtail to have that, and I just felt like a, that was... A, a, a little bit of warmth. Yeah, so that was just the one, like, I think, I think, I think Timothy Fall just did too well in that, like, I I just hate Wormtail. I just there's no, there's nothing that and she, so then it's like well it's almost unbelievable that he would have been friends your childhood friends with the other three right yeah I I that's a really good point that there wasn't it does seem difficult to that imagine him friends with the other guys yeah uh, recast Mary recast is difficult so I kind of had I kind of had the th- same thought it's like I'm not really feeling recasting any of the main characters so i went after stan shunpike i think that lee ingleby he did a great job that's a fun character no knock to him at all but i was thinking about you know who might also have done something fun with that role um and so i was thinking billy boyd might have been able to you know put a put a fun spin oh yeah he is fun I love Billy Boyd. Yeah, yeah, but now that we're talking about it, maybe we should have put Brian Fry in that role. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he wants to just live on that bus anyway. <laughs> I do. What you fell over for? <laughs> Is that a podcast first? That's the uh, first time that you've been uh, cast in a movie? I, 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 I will humbly accept a recast <laughs> for a Harry Potter movie, no matter what it is. No role too small, no... <laughs> no. Um, I, I, I also like upon really looking at this, you look at, you know, what do you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do for Harry Potter? This movie already had several recasts. Uh, this was the first time, even though it's not really credited that, uh, Flitwick was in its current iteration of Flitwick. This was Michael Gambon's first, uh, as Dumbledore. So they already had to call a couple audibles on this. So you had some, some characters changing, Robert Hardy 
who plays uh, the Minister of Magic. In a movie that is really kind of light on humor uh, in comparison to its predecessors, I was thinking if you're going to go with the uh, I'm just trying to make, you know, I'm trying to go where the wind goes kind of politician, I was thinking what if you had John Cleese there as the Minister of Magic? Is that, like, I, I look, I'm not saying Robert Hardy did a bad job because he is literally who I picture now as Minister of Magic when I read the book. So it's not one of those things that I would take anything away from him. But John Cleese is one of those things where I could see him being that jovial, like, when they proceed on with the books and they end up in a wizard war, they go with a much more Churchill-style actor, you know, being Britain and whatnot. And I was just thinking that as that jovial, more peacetime actor, you know, that that happy-go-lucky piece, that maybe the the humor could come from a John Cleese kind of character. Uh, the only other thing that I really had hit me was Walden McNair is unaccredited as a character in this, but he's the executioner in the book. Uh, it just says the executioner in, in the film's credits. So Peter Best does this. He Anyway, I was thinking, what if instead of having a mask on him, you had someone like Charles Dance from Game of Thrones play that character and then have him carry forward as a Death Eater from that point in time where he's visual. He's always a bad guy. He's a you know, he's obviously an older gentleman. Uh, he's got that creep, you know, aspect to him where he's he's up to no good. So I just figured that instead of having a masked, unidentifiable ex-Death Eater be the executioner. How about have someone that you can be like, well, there's Malfoy's dad with Isaacs. You have, you know, Charles Dance. Like, you have more people that you can be like, yep, Death Eater, Death Eater, Death Eater, Death Eater. Best shot. Bethany. For me, and this one's a very, very short shot, but it's the scene where the Dementors are kind of patrolling the boundary of, of you know, campus, and you see the castle in the distance, and as the Dementor moves, the, you know, foxglove balloons cross over one by one. Yeah. I mean, that scene just feels cold. Like, you can just feel right. it. And you really get to, to see like, how expansive, like, the, the Hogwarts grounds are and the sense that outside of this kind of warm, you know, zone, I mean, their, their campus near Hogwarts is all this danger lurking at the edges. Yes. Enemy at the gates. Uh, Mary. Uh, there's a lot of scenes that I wish I could, you know, bring attention to here. But I really love that it's, you know, it's a simple scene. It's earlier in the movie. It's when Lupin's teaching class and he's having the kids imagine their greatest fears and then turning it into something silly. Mm -hmm. I think that is so much fun seeing seeing which each kid you know what each kid is going to do like ron puts the roller skates on the spider and like it, and the and it kind of culminates in this like really revealing moment where you know lupin stop gets in front of harry so that it reflects his fear and it's a full moon like that was one of those things that that there's so much going on in that scene it's such a fun scene i missed that the first I don't know how many watches. I, I just noticed that this time around, you get that really obvious and clear. Lupin's afraid of the full moon, like right in your face. And I I missed it. So that's one of those things that brings 
like more interest the the more i watch it the more i see and that's one of those things i missed the first several times around and bethany what was your first or your best scene it was really hard to choose i had probably five that i was going through but i love the exchange of where harry is is following the map at night through the corridor and you have the portraits you know telling him you know turn the light off and then the exchange between professor snape and professor lupin but in that moment they're no longer professor snape professor lupin they're Insidious Snape and Remus, and they kind of snivelous. Yeah, they, they revert back to like their kind of adolescent, you know, rivalry. And the the, the map is this poor, you know, artifact that's like in between them. And I just, I just love that exchange. And uh, Mary, did you have a, a best shot? So this was a scene um, right after Harry finds out that Sirius is his godfather, and he runs into the woods. He's still got his invisibility cloak on. And then, you know, he's engaging with a conversation with Hermione about how, you know, he was, you know, he was their friend. How could they do that? And the director does something really cool there where instead of being close up on Harry, all of a sudden he zooms way out and the characters are so tiny on the screen. And you see this vast snowy forest and when and like Harry yells, he was their friend. And it just it it's it's it just so magnifies Harry's anger and uh, by and fear by making him so small in the shot. I thought that was a beautiful move, unexpected and beautiful. Absolutely, my favorite scene was the the unmasking of P- uh, Peter Pettigrew. That entire piece between Remus, uh, Sirius, and then the, the kids. That was a very you know, telling piece. Uh, my my best shot was the Buckbeak ride, like the inn, like coming in. Oh, do we have best wardrobe moment? Oh, sorry. Oh. Wardrobe, Bethany. I sort of called it out already. Just ha- Hagrid in his, like, hairy suit. You know, his one piece of formal wear that's hideous in the polka dot tie standing in the lake. <laughs> Mary? My favorite wardrobe moment's actually in my favorite scene. And it's where Severus Snape comes out of that mirror. And he's and then he like he's wearing what Neville's grandmother wears. I loved it. Alan Rickman played it awesome, and the wardrobe pieces for him were just just so classic. Yeah, favorite Alan Rickman moment in the film. Yeah. So I don't know if this is true or not. I read this a long time ago, but but one of my favorite wardrobe pieces is Ron and his tie, like the fat parts, the shortest part and the, the back parts. Like oh, he's yeah. just, he's just, <laughs> he's just a hot mess. And I read this thing a while back where one of the directors asked them to write like two pages about their character, like, you know, to you know, put character into words. And Emma, Emma Watson wrote like three pages on it. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe wrote like, a page and it was like eh and Rupert Grant said why am I doing this <laughs> and like, I felt Ron like Ron wouldn't that... do that yeah <laughs> exactly. and it was so understandable <laughs> change one thing Bethany yeah. change one thing is one of my in one of my favorite scenes it's that kind of reveal scene in the shrieking shack and I love the the dialogue between all the actors and the you know kind of revisiting their their childhood rivalries between the Severus, Remus, and Sirius, but I thought that was an opportunity where they could have explained more about who they were as children named Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs, and for once, it wouldn't have been just like a, a monologue for the sake of a monologue. It could have been them explaining to Harry 
more who they were in the map and just just give us a little bit more for the the non-book fans for the purely for the movie fans and, and that just give me a little bit more and give the, the book for them yeah so i hate to be this way but it's the very last frame of the movie where harry's zooming away on his new broom and it's a freeze frame of his face just cut it just don't just let him fly away you got a cool broomstick like that was seriously in my notes like i can we a freeze frame of his face while he's cut that that. stuff would have been yes cut that completely Uh, to to Bethany's point though, uh, I I I would have liked to have seen Gary Oldman in more of the movie. Like mm-hmm. if you know how in um, Goblet of Fire you 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 keep getting these segues of his dreams to what Voldemort's up to and and whatnot. I, it would have been cool if maybe using the you know, Arthur warning him or whatever as a segue to like him actually escaping Azkaban, like him mm-hmm. getting out and that sort of piece. Like, I think that would have been cool to add some, some of his Exodus piece to mm-hmm. it. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, best quote, Mary. Yeah. I think it's just the dialogue where Harry, they're in the hallway and Harry's been caught snooping around and you know snape is asking him what what the paper is and he says professors with a big nose should mind their own business and lupin says this parchment was designed to insult anyone who looks at it it's just perfect perfectly executed i mean like lupin was on his toes coming up with making that a making that seem like a real thing he he was the hermione of the original group so uh bethany this is one I just, I love the delivery. I love just how deep it cuts. But when Hermione punches Malfoy and she's, you foul, loathsome, evil little cockroach. Like it's just insulting Darwell. on every level. <laughs> there's a line from this. Like I said, this was the first movie where there's at least one line in every subsequent movie that just, I like, I still try to say it the same way he said it. And it's, it's one of Gary Oldman's lines. And it's, I did my waiting. 12 years of it in Azkaban. And the way his voice cracks when he says in Azkaban, like, like the first part is fury. The second part is fear. And I just, the way that line hits every time I hear it sums up his character. It's like, I, I did my time. Like I, I didn't try to, you know, put anything else out there i've had my my say now i get to kill this man and it's funny because i actually have in my notes here too because our last our our last movie was or the last movie i was on was breaking away and i said it was the worst best friend movie you could ever watch and now i'm like this is the best best friend movie you could ever outside of the one guy Hmm. you've got you've got the two left saying i'm gonna kill the one who let it slip I'm going to go and say this is the the best best friend thing because like, they're like, look, you should have known that if Voldemort didn't kill you, we would. And that's awesome. Like, all about that. Yeah, that, that's, a really, that's a really awesome moment. Um, I do have to, I just have to add a Dumbledore line in here. I loved when he said, after they're at Hyagrid's hut, Harry and Hermione have let 
Buckbeak go free. And Dumbledore is just like, search the skies if you like. Meanwhile, I'll have a nice cup of tea or a large brandy. It's just so <laughs> nonchalant because he knew the whole time that he was going to find a way to get Buckbeak out of there. And I just, I love it. All right. On a scale to one to five, using half point ratings, Bethany, where do you, uh, where do you have this fall? Uh, I'm going to give it a five out of five. I've already expressed my love for the story, for the content, and then it's just, it's just a good movie. It's well executed. It's well, everything wardrobe, soundtrack, acted. It's, it's a solid movie. Excellent, Mary. I'm going to do a half star. I'm going to do 4.5, and that's 100% on that very last frame of the film. <laughs> and that's on the editors. If it wasn't for that, <laughs> why did you let that happen? <laughs> I'll agree. I, in terms of a very like well-rounded, amazing film, to end it like that, I was like, that was a mistake, but... I don't get why they did with the blur frame where in the a blur face I is agree. terrible. That means it's the mentor sucking your soul out. I agree. Like don't <laughs> end on a face blur. Like terrible. Like, I get it. I get it. It's really fast. I get it. It's really fast. Like, I mean, yeah, it's a uh, nice broom. We know that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really nice broom. Um uh, I gave this a four star just because I boycott point fives. This is a great movie. Uh, this this actually might be the best of the Harry Potters. I, I take so much umbrage, no pun intended, with some of the stuff that they do in the last two movies, uh, some of the things they leave out, that I think this actually might be my most well-rounded Harry, Harry Potter films. But going into that, let's, uh, let's select a movie for next time. Uh, Mary, you want to help me out with that? Sure. Movie number one is going to be The Coconuts, uh, 1929. During the Florida land bloom, the Marx Brothers run a hotel, auction off some land, thwart a jewelry robbery, and generally act like themselves. Option number two, Animal Crackers, 1930. Mayhem and zaniness ensue when a valuable painting goes missing during a party in honor of a famed African explorer, Captain Spaulding. Or option three, Monkey Business, 1931. On a transatlantic crossing, the Marx Brothers get up to their usual antics and manage to annoy just about everyone on board the ship. Okay, well, um, let's go for Monkey Business. Monkey Business is the winner. So we will be doing Monkey Business. Uh, well, I'd like to thank you, Bethany, for joining us, and also you, Mary, and uh, thank you to all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, or review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on fo- Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free, but we invite you to support our show at our Patreon page, page www.patreon.com slash RetroMovieRoundtable forward slash. Don't forget that part. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening, but be good to each other and watch more movies. Mary. And I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Well, Bethany, it's a pleasure to meet you. I hope to see you on again. And, uh, yeah. It's a lot of fun. I have a fun, uh, fact, for you or is, it, or is Chad the Mega Dune fan? I'm the Mega Dune fan. 
Um, my older sister is named Aaliyah or Alia, A L I A. Because of Dune. Because of Dune, yes, that was. Yes. Oh, that's perfect. awesome. Uh, <laughs> I did not know that. He will appreciate the uh, kind of the flower held. Yes weird hippie nerds that my parents were um and my my older sister's namesake solely from that book that's <laughs> awesome that is, that is phenomenal uh, uh, i didn't i didn't go for dune in our our kids naming i actually went with frank lloyd wright's house's name uh is my daughter's middle name so uh yeah i i i honestly thought that taliesin was the most beautiful word i ever heard <laughs> Awesome. That is cool. I actually was wondering if that's what you guys were thinking, or if there was some other it, meaning it, that I didn't know. It, it's it's a co piece. It's actually the a guy's name. He was a Arthurian poet bard um, that they credit a lot of the uh, reference material to King Arthur for. Uh, but obviously, that being a male, and it never sounded like a male's name in my head. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so Avon Talius and Fry. That's really cool. Yeah, actually, somebody asked me if Grant was named after Alan Grant from Jurassic Park. And it's like, well, <laughs> that's cool, but yeah, I hadn't <laughs> thought of that. Like, I guess that's a positive connotation, but it wasn't the intention. My, uh, my left hip piece of this was uh, that I was always going to call her Tally, and that was going to be from Mass Effect. So, I don't know if Chad has told you this, but Belle went through a phase where she was saying she was talking to Tally, like an oh, apparition. Yeah? This was way before you guys, like, right. were even ha yeah. knew you were pregnant. Like, this was, <laughs> and, yeah, and so Chad kept doing, like, the red rum, red rum. <laughs> right. Like, and, and who is Tally? Like, he kept, like, he kept asking, is this somebody at your school? Is it somebody at daycare? And she... <laughs> It's like, no, this was like an imaginary friend of Belle's named Tally. So I thought that was really crazy. <laughs> every, every major decision that Jess and I have made in Spokane, Washington has come at a bar downtown. Um, we, we literally sat at a bar over beers and decided to buy our house. We sat at a bar downtown over beers and decided the name of our child um so it's it's just been one of those things but yeah basically i was like hey i'm gonna float because i like it it's weird and i was like the number one proponent saying like we're not going to name our kids something weird but she gave me the opening and <laughs> i took it <laughs> and she goes that really is a pretty name and i was like right we can just like cut it down to tally so yeah, hey, yeah. I mean, we have to wonder what um what our parents were thinking. Parents who watched or read the Dune books. I'm pretty sure right. that I knew Kyle MacLachlan as Paul Atreides before <laughs> I watched Twin Peaks as a four five year old. Ah, oh, gosh, I love Twin Peaks. <laughs> Maybe not the best movie. What does that before. say about me? Uh, <laughs> like, why was why was I watching that at four? Uh, <laughs> Movie movie choices in our, right. our house. So. Well, guys, I would absolutely love to keep doing this, but my nanny is eight minutes late getting out of here, so I'm going to run downstairs. Okay, thanks pleasure. for having me on. Thank you, guys. Right. I really Thank you, guys. Yeah. I hope to see you guys again soon. Okay, Bye. awesome, and I will let this go until Russell gets here. All right, perfect. Bye. Bye, Bye guys. <laughs>